welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is a result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organisations and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Michelle Dickinson. Now, Michelle's um, a very interesting person, and I think she's got some fascinating stories and has also written what appears to be a really fascinating book. Um, so, hi, Michelle. Hello, Russell. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I can tell by the accent immediately that you're not from the UK. So where in the world are you? I am from New Jersey in the US. Yeah. I've been uh, a resident of my town for quite some time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a US uh, woman here. Fantastic. Now, I'm just I'm trying to do my geography. Um, New Jersey, that's near... New York City. Of course it is. I was just saying that just to test you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's lovely. Love to hear you. Love to hear your voice. And um, I'm looking forward to our chat. So, Michelle, tell me, how do you describe yourself? How do you describe what you do? How do I describe what I do? Well, I feel like I have, over the course of the past five years, uh, really got connected to my passion. And that's, you know, becoming a, a real vocal advocate for mental health. Um, professionally, you know, I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry uh, about 19 years now, but through the course of writing my story, I've gotten really connected and become even more aware of the stigma that still lives um, around mental health. So I think that you could say that I'm a mental health advocate. Um, So, so yeah, that's what gets me excited, making a difference in that, in that realm. So you said you worked in the sort of pharmaceuticals industry. Just tell me a little bit about your life and your career. Yeah, sure. So I so New Jersey is known as the medicine chest of the U.S. We have several pharmaceutical companies, and I think I've worked at about five of them. Um, I am in the regulatory quality space right now, um, but I have many years uh, in medical education and regulatory operations. Uh, behind me, uh, I started my career as a secretary and sort of worked my way up. Something I'm proud of, um, and went to school along the way. I didn't, I didn't go to school right after, uh, you know, my high school years. I yeah. took some time off and got and got an extended education while working. That must have been that must have been tough, sort of splitting your yeah <laughs> your life in two like that because people people don't i mean I, I know i've done sort of postgraduate education or you know education when you've been working and it's it's actually very hard to juggle the demands of that isn't it it is but i think you're um much more uh open to learning i loved the experience of being in school even though i was working full-time i, I just had a different mindset as as an adult than i did younger yeah it is interesting isn't it because people there seems to be an established track that people um, leave, we, we call it school here, then go to college or university, and then you, you get a sort of degree or something, and then you, you go to work, and then 
sort of developments left very much to chance for the rest of your life. And it does seem to be the case that, you know, we're seeing the, the rise of people in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, retraining, re-educating. And, it, and it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's such a great opportunity, isn't it? Not, not yeah. just for your well, um, um, career, but also for your well-being and your, and your mental health. Yeah, because you're growing and you're learning. And I think when you can take your your applied experience in the in the workforce and then like combine that with your journey as a student, as a lifelong student, uh, it's, it's just such a great recipe for, um, you know, ongoing lifelong learning. Mm. And, and how was life growing up for you? Because you had some challenges, I understand. I did. I grew up with a, a bipolar mother. Um, and so she, you know, she was very much the example of bipolar. She had rapid mood cycling from serious uh, depression where she would be crying, you know, uncontrollably for an extended period of time, have to be then hospitalized, undergo intense treatment. Um, and then other times she would be extremely manic and that would have her, you know, up all night day after day, running around, just being completely, um, uh, just completely uh, energized, uh, over-energized, if you will. So it was uh, definitely a challenge for me. I think as a child, you try to figure out your environment and what's normal. And I didn't really have a lot of consistency because she was so all over the board, you know, and that's hard for a child not to have consistency and know what to expect at home. It was always a roller coaster. And you see, that's interesting because I was just, I was just going to ask you, did that matter in a way? The fact that um, she was all, sort of all over. I mean, did that matter? You know, it did because I would, I would try really hard. I learned how to like read a room when I was young, how to read her mood and adjust accordingly. Uh, But coming home after school, for example, something very simple, opening the door and not knowing if she was going to be in a good mood, if she was going to be angry or if she was going to be crying. It was just this whole volatile space. And then I had to like take the temperature of the room and understand, you know, okay, this is the role I have to play today. And, um, and that yeah. must be challenging. I mean, I suppose you come to a certain stage or a certain age where you start to assume some level of responsibility almost or need to join in or to help. That, yeah. that, must, that must be a challenge. Yeah. It, it was. I mean, you know, but I didn't know any better. You know, if you, if you took any child and put them in that situation after they have an established normal, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the big upset. But for me, I didn't know any different. And all I knew is that my father needed me to do things that, needed to be done in the house if she was, you know, struggling with her depression for a week and not cleaning the the house or looking after the kitchen or cooking dinner. That was just what I had to do um, because that's what was needed. And we were a family and that's what you do. So. Wow. What, 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 what effects do you think that's left on you? Because in some ways, I guess it's, there's a negative, but, but in many ways there'd be some real positives as well, I suppose. Exactly. Um, I write about, it's so funny, I, because, you know, I had to go through a lot of healing to come to a place to write my book from love and compassion and forgiveness, to be honest with you, because I, I had harbored a lot of anger toward my mother. Yeah. Um, it shaped me. It shaped me in ways that 
um, I still am challenged by, but also shape me in ways that I'm so grateful for. And in the back of the book, I actually have an epilogue where I share, look at all the amazing attributes I have because of that experience. Um, you know, resiliency is one of them, you yeah. know, obviously, but I think the other, um, you know, the thing I learned as a child that I still am trying to unlearn as an adult is putting everyone's needs before my own. That's probably one of the negative aspects of being a child caregiver is you lose yourself in caring for your loved one and you don't even know better. Right. So, you know, so you have to learn how to find your voice and speak your truth. Uh, as you grow older and realize how important it is to ask for for what you want. Mm. So, but, do, you think, uh, but yeah. do you think there's an element where you sort of have to grow up a bit too fast? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, while other kids were in class, you know, focusing on their studies, I was worrying if my mother was okay at home. If, mm. you know, when I came home after school, she was, she was going to still be okay. You know, that's not, something a child should be worrying about, but that's what I worried about was, you know, I just stayed home with her for a few days. Dad needed me to stay out of school to take af to look after her. And now I'm back at school. Is she going to be okay? I'm not there watching her. So you have a role reversal, I think, in those scenarios where a child quickly becomes, you know, plays the role of the adult. And it must be hard to get over a sense of blame, I suppose, because you must... I mean, there must be some sort of sense of resentment that builds up in the child. Uh, whilst they don't know any different, there must be then a yeah. comparison as you grow up, looking at other people and thinking, well, you know, look at them enjoying themselves while I'm home looking after my mother. You know, yeah. I mean, how does that manifest itself? Yeah, I think I got a glimpse of that mostly in my girlfriends and seeing my girlfriend's relationship with their mother mm. and seeing how carefree that relationship was um, and starting to recognize my life wasn't as normal as I thought it was. Um, and I did have a lot of resentment because I had a lot of responsibility up until my mother passed away. Even in my, my 20s, I had a lot of burden and responsibility on me to keep try to keep her at peace and happy. Um, but it was never going to be enough for someone like that. Um, so it was hard. I mean, it, w it was definitely hard, but then, you know, I then started on my own healing journey and I did a lot of self-discovery work and I had a lot of therapy to kind of resolve some of that and maybe take a step back and put myself in her shoes and recognize she was struggling with a mental illness mm -hmm. and trying to be a mother. Um, you know, one of my leaders that I work with at J&J &J has been quoted as saying the hurt... Um, the hurt cause others hurt, right? And I think that's true. She was hurting in her own way, yes. not understanding how to deal with what she was dealing with in her mind. And so she knew how to hurt others, and she did that. Yes. Um, and it's unfortunate. It's a cycle. And and I mean, I, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly how old you want. I don't need I don't need to. But I'm thinking if you were going back you know, sort of 20, 30, 20 something years, there wasn't really even a name for that condition then, was there? You know, I think I heard so many different variations, right? It was manic depressant, yeah. depressive, um, bipolar, um, 
you know, just depressed. She's just depressed. I mean, all kinds of things, you know, and then all kinds of different treatments and all kinds of stories about treatments and how they went. Um, my friend, actually, a very dear friend and colleague, Joe, she lives in the UK. She's a colleague of mine. She actually introduced me to the the Secret Life of the Manic Depressant by uh, Stephen Fry. Yeah, I was going to mention that, yeah. And that documentary opened my eyes to what life could have been like for my mother. And I'm so grateful that she did because that was the first step I could start to, you know, recognize and have some compassion for what mom was dealing with. Mm. And it's that thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a terribly worn path and almost glib, isn't it? Talk about forgiveness. But, you know, I'm sure your, your mother's not doing it on purpose, but it's very hard if you're young to not... Yeah. To not, well, just not to understand that. I mean, how, how can you understand that, you know? Right, because you're so focused on the effects that they are having on you. Yeah. And that effect is horrible. My mom was physically abusive, emotionally abusive, mentally abusive, and she. this is just who she was. Um, you know, but as I got older, you know, I started to recognize there's a human being and then there's the disease. And if you can separate the two... You will recognize that the person that is your mother or the person that is your loved one is truly a beautiful, loving, caring soul, and then they have a disease. Yes. So that's therein lies the power to recognize your loved one for who they are and then the fact that they're struggling with a disease. And I think it's it's a tricky thing. It's, it's interesting. One of the things you actually started off by saying was that mental health is... You're an advocate because there's still the stigma attached to it. And someone in my circle at the moment is going through this. And they they struggle with the fact that they haven't got a leg missing or something because actually they just seem normal to the outside world. The outside world struggles because they don't seem to have an, a leg missing. It just seems to be something wrong with their head. So they look yeah. they look normal. And, this, and you can hear the sort of the rumbling of, well, why don't you just pull yourself together? And people yeah. don't realise that this is a genuine Ill illness. And if it was, and this is, it's as bad or as difficult, you know, it's very difficult to compare things, but it's the mm -hmm. same as any sort of physical illness. It is, a, it is an illness. It isn't something that's a, a lifestyle choice or, you know, something that you, you know, you, you sort of try on for a few years. It's a, it's a it's, thing, isn't it? It is so true. And, you know, and that's what's so upsetting about these, if, these invisible diseases or invisible disability, if you yeah. will, yeah. is that, you know, if we have heart disease or if we have diabetes, you know, it is a disease of a specific organ. Yeah. You know, yeah. when we have a brain illness, like why don't we relate to it as, okay, so this is the brain and it just needs additional support. Why do we relate to it in such a shameful way? And be afraid to talk about it. I mean, if you had heart disease, God forbid, you would call your friend who was diagnosed last year with heart disease and say, well, what, are you, what is your doctor doing? What are you getting? What kind of treatment are you doing? And you'd start to talk about it. You're not calling someone to say, hey, I was just diagnosed with blah, 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 depression, major depression, bipolar, let's talk about it. You're afraid to talk about it. And that's where we have so much opportunity to shift how people relate to brain health. So, 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 given you posed all those questions about what, why is it, why is it, why is it? What's your view about why it is like that? I think, like anything, there's shame and then there's fear, mm -hmm. right? Their shame is I'll be perceived as weak, 
Then there's fear. I don't know if I'm going to be rejected from my friends and family or accepted. And then there's fear of, oh gosh, like what kind of treatment am I going to get? And am I going to, is it even going to help me? Um, you know, and so shame and fear are the two biggest reasons why I think people think that they have to muscle it out or tough it out on their own. Um, and, and it's just so unfortunate. And, and, it's, and it's interesting and part of the evolution of what's going on at the moment. Certainly in the UK, there's a big drive to recognize mental health as, as an issue. But we've almost now gone to the other extreme now where we're sort of saying, well, uh, you know, if someone comes in and they're mildly irritated today, that's a mental health issue. And that somewhat worries me because it sort of negates the people who have the genuine, sorry, not genuine, the serious, yeah. yes. the serious clinical conditions rather than a sort of emotionally driven condition. And, and I think sometimes this is part of the evolution of awareness, isn't it? A bit like happened with stress. You know, after, after a word, the, word the, if we're not careful, the, the term becomes meaningless. So we have to be quite clear that mental, mental health is not about socialising it. It's about learning to accept it as it is, really, rather than pretending it's something else, rather than pretending it's just, about, you know, we feel a bit down today, therefore you have a mental, Ill, mental illness. It's not really that. It's something, it is that proper condition. And, and I know it's, we're talking about degrees of, you know, shades of grey here, but I just do think there's a risk as we begin to socialise and normalise the word that we lose the sight of the importance of what the thing is we're trying to, to normalise yeah. in a way. Yeah, and I think it has a lot to do with education, right. and it has a lot to do with being responsible with our words, right? I mean, I've heard this before where people throw around the term, oh, you know, he's having a mood swing, so he's bipolar. Exactly. You know, it's, it's like if that's the kind of language that will diminish what truly is a mental illness. So I don't know. I think there, there needs to be more... Um, more convert, open conversations to have people understand how to speak about it responsibly, um, you know, so it's not just so easily tossed around and, you know, and you're diminishing what other people are truly diagnosed with. And I think that's right, because certainly in our world of resilience, I almost see sometimes people trying on a mental health condition, saying, oh, does this fit me? You know, I've, I've read this label. It's almost like when you troll the internet for diseases, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I see people who are, being, who are defining themselves by yeah. something that helped, you know, and, and they tried on the wear it for a few, for a few months and they said, no, I don't fancy that now. I'll have stress instead. That's, that's a bit more glamorous. And, and it is, and I know I'm exaggerating for effect, but it is that situation where you don't, if you've got these things, you don't pretend and you don't mess about. But the trouble is, the huge welter of noise in this area stops the real help getting to those people that actually need it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, self-diagnosis is always a scary thing, right? I think, I think if you're struggling yourself and you don't feel like you have the level of joy in your life you deserve, you should absolutely get a professional's assessment so that you know if you have a clinical diagnosis and then you know how to treat that instead of self-diagnosing and, you know, thinking that you can cure yourself by doing some, you know, things on your own. I don't know. That's just my opinion. But I think, you know, you could try on a lot of different things if you're not careful after you troll the Internet. So it's just yes. a car. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's whilst it's fashionable, it's not clever to be taking the resources away from people that need it. 
I mean, um, this the sort of bipolar thing can run through different generations. Has, has that been, or you know, can also yeah. affect all sorts of relationships? Has that has that been your experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember giving a talk uh, to a bunch of scientists. It was funny because I didn't I didn't recognize I had so many scientists in the room when I was sharing my story, and I was very uh, very proud to say this is my mother and this is her story, and oh, I'm adopted, and I am adopted. Ah. Um, and so I had I had these individuals challenge me and say, you know, it's nurture versus nature, Michelle. It could you could still be affected because I thought I'm not going to have bipolar disorder. I am not her biological child. But being in that environment for so long did affect me. Right. My environment itself affected me. I struggle with, in New Jersey right now. I, I don't know if I could ever live in the UK. No, no disrespect. But I struggle with these long, dark, gray days of the winter. And I struggle with seasonal depression because of it. Yeah. And, you know, is that something that came out of my experience, being with a woman who sat depressed, crying for days and days, and just knowing what that felt like, being in her space? It could. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I've heard of people who have generations of, uh, you know, different mental illnesses that they, they see in their family members. You know, that's a really... That's a really fascinating thought, isn't it? That actually, because one one would assume that something that is purported to be genetic wouldn't really have a societal, or cultural, or family sort of effect. But I suppose you're almost you were almost shaped, yeah, from a very early age to to see that as the way adult behaviour is. Yeah. So it is more likely. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? And the trouble is, you also you can have a false attribution to. To something because you might have always had I mean your you know True. your birth mother might have had that and it might be nothing to do but but it's what a fascinating thing I've never really I've never really looked into that area I shall have to, have to, have to have, a, have a look at that yeah it's interesting too because I mean oh, I just know what that feeling was like you know it, it it's almost like spend some time with someone who is clinically depressed and in a very dark place and unmedicated and see how that affects you. And I think that's basically what I experienced for several years as a child. Yeah. You know, my mom was medicated, but then took herself off of medication. Compliance is one of the biggest challenges with people who struggle with mental illness. Yes. She thought she was fine. She took herself off and she would be even more depressed. Yes. How did your, you father, know? How did your father cope? Oh, he, that man was a saint. I say this to this day. I loved, I loved him, and I realize now he really did the best he could. He never left her side. He worked really hard. He worked for IBM. He had a long, healthy career with IBM, and he provided whatever he could for her, and he had to be the one to take her to the mental institutions when she was so sick that she needed to be you know, hospitalized for periods of time. Yeah. So it was hard for him. It was really hard for him. Wow. I mean, this is resilience, isn't it? It's uh, that ability yeah. to just weather that storm and take every single day as it comes and just, and it's, it's a very, very tough place to be. There's no doubt about it. Yep, yep. So how, how did this affect your relationships r rolling on? Because often if you've lived in that environment, you, you can end up being a sort of, or you can end up, I mean, I don't forget the phrase, you often end up, mar mar is it marrying your father or marrying a mother or something? You know? <laughs> have, you, yeah. have you fallen into that as well? 
<laughs> I talk about that in one of my chapters. It's so funny because you gravitate toward what is familiar, not is not toward what is good for you. Yeah. And so that's what I found myself doing at a very young age to get away from my mother. I uh, gravitated to someone who is exactly like my mother. Hey. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then uh, had to go through a lot of therapy after that experience. But um, but yeah, it definitely affects you. I mean, speaking my truth—that's something I still struggle with, even as a forty-seven-year-old woman. Um, you know, f speaking up for what I want in a relationship, and you know, um, having my voice be heard. And those are all things that, that come from, you know, putting your needs on the shelf when you care for someone. Mm, fascinating. And so, and so you've written the book. Did the book come after the therapy? So in other words, this was a, a memoir or was the book part of the therapy? Oh, wow. So my story goes like this. I lost my mother. My mother... Um, I was very upset about my mother and I had a very dear friend of mine recommend doing the landmark forum. So I did the landmark forum and a bunch of landmark self-discovery work. And then I was invited to give a Ted talk on the Ted stage. Johnson and Johnson has a private license for the Ted stage. So we had a Ted forum and I actually was the first time I told my story was on that Ted stage. And the response from that gave me the confidence to embark on writing my book. So when I started to write my book, I had gone through a lot of self-discovery work, a lot of therapy, um, and I got connected to my message on the TED stage. And then, um, fortunately, I had turned my anger and resentment into love and forgiveness and compassion so that when I sat down to write my story, it was a much different story than it would have been had I been angry. Right. Um, yeah. And so... It took four years to write my, my book, and it was a four-year, very cathartic experience reliving a lot of what I, I had grown up in. So, so I'm guessing when you're writing a book, you have to relive the whole yeah. experience, don't you? Um, you do. So how does that work? Uh, that's why it took four years, ah. Russell. <laughs> yeah. So every, so I, uh, I'm not a writer. I'm just a girl that had a story. So I, I knew I needed help. So I had a writing coach guide me through the writing process. So she would oftentimes have me rewrite things over and over and then say to me, you have to bring your reader with you on that experience. So you really have to relive that. So I need you to relive that and then rewrite it. And so I would spend my weekends like hysterically crying, but I would come out with a piece that represented that experience so the reader could understand what it was like. Wow. Uh, and that must be interesting because uh, that sort of experiential writing really makes it leap off the page. I know you've had, um, we're talking about the book, we've not actually talked about several days, but I know I'm just reading the reviews, which are stunning really. They all talk about this fact it leaps off the page. You know, there's a sort of a connection with the with the material. And that's, that's because I guess you were reliving it as you were writing it. Yeah, and that gets me so excited because my goal was to humanize the experience of someone with a mental illness so people could start to understand it. And and just like we were talking about, maybe fear it less yes. or, you know, be less ignorant to what it is. 
Um, so I'm so glad uh, that people have, have really given that feedback because I want them to get what that experience was like. And so, and so I'm guessing you're, you're, now you're a published author. So you're going to be writing another 77 books. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll write another one. But I'm really connected to this, um, this mission of you know, causing change around mental illness. So I think I want to focus on this right now. But maybe. Well, let's, let's discuss how people can get hold of you and, um, and how get hold of the book and, and talk a bit about your website as well, because you've got a magnificent website with a lot of um, really useful contacts and things. So why don't you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Thanks for asking. Okay, so my website is, uh, well, first of all, the book is called Breaking Into My Life, Growing Up With a Bipolar Parent and My Battle to Reclaim Myself. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. My website, which you can contact me through, is breakingintomylife.com. Um, and on my website, I have uh, a blog. I have statistics around mental illness. I have a free excerpt. If you don't want to buy the book, you can read a free excerpt there. Um, and there's also resources, which I try to refresh as frequently as I can to share with people really good resources and tools that they can tap into um, and get support, uh, whether they're a caregiver or someone themselves struggling. Did you have someone in mind as an audience for the for the book when you wrote it? Because I'm just wondering, because it sort of raises the question, who is this for? Is, is, it, is it for the people who are experiencing what you did? Is it for practitioners? Because sometimes practitioners don't really get the, the personal story, the CS or third party removed. It. So, so who is it for? You know, it's funny because at the end of the of the writing process, I struggled with that because mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like it does. Uh, it, it, it's for anyone who's just wanting to understand what life is like loving and caring for someone with mental illness. But then also, I've had people write me who have bipolar disorder who have said to me, thank you for the perspective that you've given me. I now understand the impact I might be having on my own loved ones. So it could be someone struggling with bipolar or a mental illness to give them a different perspective. So it's really, I, I don't want to say it's for one. I just think it, it creates, um, it has, it's an experience that I think anyone can benefit from. And I noticed that you research, you send people off to, um, the videos about black dog and such like, which are really good videos that help people understand some of the early symptoms of depression and such like. You've got some really good, um, really good um, resources on here. And I think, I think for us, the Stephen Fry thing, obviously him being a Brit, he, he's 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 done so much to popularise and you know um, allow something like bipolar to just you know to be seen as something that can affect anybody. And I think. Yeah. What I'm finding fascinating is that your mum was a, just a, a sort of, you know, an ordinary person who had this remarkable thing. And right. anyone can have this, can't they? And and that makes your story remarkable because actually you were dealing with someone who was facing something that was quite problematic, uh, problematical themselves. Right, right. You know, and I, I, I have to leave you with a tool that I think is so important. You know, I like to share this with my audiences all the time. I think what we need to do is create spaces for people to feel comfortable talking about mental health. And I can tell you to go out and, and cause a conversation, but it's awkward as heck. So I'm not going to ask you to do that. But there's a great resource 
um, that two of my peers created called 18percent.org. It's uh, the number 18 with the word percent written out, .org. It is a free peer-to-peer online community where if you have you think you might be diagnosed with something, you can go in there and talk to other people in different chat rooms about what you're feeling and they can say to you, oh, well, I have the same thing and this is what I'm doing or this is the kind of help that I've received and this is how I felt when I was newly diagnosed. And that connection and that conversation is going to help people feel less isolated. So I'd love for people to check that out. Just give us that um, that resource again, please. Sure. It's www, the number 18, the word percent written out, .org. I'm doing it now. You've got me so fascinated. I'm already doing it. Here we are. This is this is a fascinating podcast. Listening to an old man typing on the typing on the computer, <laughs> <laughs> looking something up on the computer. Here we go. Oh yeah, this is this is great. Yeah, it's good. Good. Oh, thank you for that. Okay. This has been great. I really really enjoyed talking to you, and I've learned so much. And it's 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 remarkable I mean you know I know how, what it takes to write a book and I know what it takes to write a book when you're doing a full-time job at the very senior level you know so you know kudos to you but I think Thanks. you're right I think you're um it's, it's remarkable to have people like you as advocates and you know please keep doing the work and please write another book ah uh, thank you thank you so much for having me and for for raising this conversation And, you know, I want people to know that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've lived through, no matter what experience you've had, you have it within you to create your future from where you are. So it's anything is possible. If I could bounce back from this and be a a force for change, I think pretty much people can can, you know, just do the work and and create that future that you deserve. Superb. Oh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I think... um, I think um, it's been really brilliant. And um, Michelle's website is breakingintomylife.com and her book is the same name. Michelle, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Please take care. Thank you. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.